Well, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Danny. It's an honor and privilege to get to share from God's Word with you today. I hope we have some fun to get to learn some new things together. And um, just to share a little bit of what I'm seeing up here, um, I discovered this morning a crack in my iPad screen, and I didn't do it. I know it wasn't me. So I have a feeling um, it was done by maybe three and a half foot, 40 pound, four-year-old who's not entirely gentle with devices as I would like her to be. So anyways, we'll be getting that screen fixed this week. Um, But we are looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, um, if you've been with us. uh, And what we've identified is that basically what we're looking at is a sermon from who we were introduced to in chapter one as the teacher. Okay, and a couple of terms that we've used that I feel like are helpful for us to remember. One is the Hebrew word hevel. And in our English translations, that's the word you might find meaningless or futility or vanity. Um, And the best way to remember what that word means is vapor or mist. It's the idea of something you can see but you can't grasp onto. Another term that we found helpful is under the sun. And this is that acknowledgement of like an earthly perspective, but then there's also this acknowledgement of a heavenly perspective. The acknowledgement that there's a difference between our experience and then the reality of what God designed us to experience. And one of the questions that I think is interesting about this phrase is, If it is just like human perspective written in the book of Ecclesiastes, but we know that all scripture is God breathed, then why do we like why do we have this book in the Bible? And and I think that that's an interesting question to ask. And there's certainly a lot of reasons, Um, but one of the one of the reasons that I find super interesting is when the Old Testament was written, much of it was really designed as a response to the cultures around Israel. It was it was set it was written to sort of set them apart and how they would be distinguished as a people, but even more so how God, Yahweh, was distinguished from the gods of the people. And so in the ancient Near East, this is way back, we're talking hundreds, thousands of years BC, there was a literature written mostly in Egypt and Mesopotamia called pessimism literature. There's copies of this, there's a work called The Dialogue of Pessimism from 14th century Babylon. Uh, You can go buy the Epic of Gilgamesh on Amazon, Uh, That's from 2100 BC, and it's this poem of this guy Gilgamesh who goes on this journey to find life's meaning, and spoiler alert, he comes back and he says, life which you look for, you will never find. It's brutal. So the culture around Israel is basically coming to the conclusion of their literature in this pessimism literature is that life isn't worth living. And so even in the book of Ecclesiastes, however bleak it may seem to us as we're reading it thousands of years after it was written, it was written 600 years before Jesus came and was born, but even in its self-contained state, it points to the promise of God's goodness and the assurance that faith leads to a good place. And so we have the benefit of having the rest of scripture, but even self-contained, it's a response to what the culture around Israel was, Israel was saying. And so in our cultural moment where pessimism may not be as rampant, uh, we're still faced with the challenge of life's questions and how do we answer them. So as Christians, we're faced with, will we let the culture inform that or will we let let godly wisdom inform that? And the culture is faced with the question of, well, how will we answer these questions? And they're left with the the limited under the sun perspective, right? And so while the outcome may not be the same as the ancient Near East, that life isn't worth living, the implications are similar, that living a life apart from the divine intention leads to separation from God, which is ultimately outside of his design for us. So in this season of Lent that's marked by reflection, 
we're really thinking about and reflecting on our own mortality, our own life, there is no better book maybe than the book of Ecclesiastes to, to guide us as we look at these questions and discover how we're designed to live. So in our first week, uh, Dale talked about this idea of vapor management and the idea that like all these things that we have are good things, they're to be enjoyed, but the culture would say we're defined by the vapor that we have, whereas godly wisdom would say, what are we doing with the vapor that the creator has given us to bless others? Last week we looked at the, the chapter three and the concept of time, and we got kind of existential for a little bit, but we, we talked about how uh, God, the, creator, the uncreated, places the eternity in the hearts of the created. And he says, Jesus called this, this uh, the kingdom of God, and we can experience the peace of being trapped in uh, fear of the past or uh, anxiety of the future. We can experience that now by entering into relationship with Jesus, and we can cultivate that relationship and stay in that space of peace. Now, chapter four, the teacher transitions his sermon into a, a little bit of a more practical aspect. And he says it's full of proverb thought, proverbial thoughts and questions getting into very practical aspects of life, things like poverty and wealth, wealth, suffering and sin, authority and injustice, wisdom and foolishness. But the first thing he addresses in this section is relationships. And one of the things we said about Ecclesiastes is that this is like a master class on life's experiences. God says of Solomon, who uh, for all intents and purposes is the teacher, he says there will never be anyone as wise as you again. So everything about this sermon is intentional, including the structure and layout. So I don't think there's any coincidence that the very next thing, if we're living in the kingdom of God, the thing that he points us to, how to experience that, is relationships. Um, Anyone uh, Friends fans, like the show Friends? Anybody? Nobody? Me either, but that's okay. Um, but when, the, when that sitcom was originally pitched, it was received with pretty low expectations. Um, however, the show ran from 1994 to 2003. It ranks as one of the top sitcoms of all times. And 20 years after the finale, it's still making a billion dollars a year in rerun revenue. It's crazy. They're ma- like the actors are making $20 million a year just on reruns. Books have been written on its impact of culture. 50 million people watched the finale live. And it really became a cultural icon in many ways. And what made it such a big deal wasn't like the story of uh, six people sitting in a coffee shop not drinking a lot of coffee. It really was the characters, right? And there's studies done in these characters, and one of the things that people say is that the writers did such a good job taking the 12 historic character archetypes, blending them into six people so that the majority of people can look and identify themselves with one of those characters. It makes sense why this would be captivating because when we look at surveys, particularly on loneliness, surveys say that 60% of people say that they are not known by someone in their lives. They don't feel known. And the primary survey done on loneliness conducted by Cigna in 2018, this is pre-pandemic by the way, said that 50% of people say they sometimes or always feel lonely. Everything that I read, people think that's probably higher now and that would make sense coming out of the pandemic. But we know that one of the primary human longings is to be known, to be in relationship, to be connected, to be loved. And so over the course of the 10 seasons that Friends ran, these classic characters portray the human experience, most of the time, like, funny, very dramatized, but it's designed to be an image that we can see ourselves in that. 
And despite the conflict, they always come back to each other. They always have a place of connection. They're always loved and they're always known. And so friends is a picture of our, one of our innate desires to be known. We long for that. And so this, the passage this morning, we're going to look at the questions that the teacher raises about relationships. So if you have your Bibles, would you open to Ecclesiastes 4? If you've got an app, you can do that. Um, if you don't, that's okay. It'll be on the screen for you. But let's just read this whole section starting in verse 7 together. Ecclesiastes 4, 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depraving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who, knew, who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. We thank you for this time to gather this morning to look at it. Father, would you speak through your word to us? May we fall more in love with your word, and therefore, may we fall more in love with you. Amen. Um, so let's go through this and just unpack what we're looking at here. So verse 7 through 9, he says, again, I saw vanity, there's that word vapor, under the sun. So vapor from a humanly perspective. We get this picture of a person without friends, without family. Uh, there's no end to their toil. They're a workaholic. Their eyes are never satisfied with riches. He, this person's been super successful in their career, incredibly wealthy. If it is King Solomon, historically, he's considered the wealthiest person on the planet at that time. Um, but he still asks the question, who am I working for? He's realizing how lame it is that he has all this stuff and no one to share it with. And I was thinking about how a film would portray this, right? Like you're watching a movie in the theater, and uh, I imagine a guy, he's sitting by his infinity pool. Anybody seen Ocean's Eleven? Remember the guy Ruben? Like uh, Brad Pitt and George Clooney go to see him. He's got big sunglasses. He's got a big old gold necklace on. He's wearing this robe that's open. You can see his chest, and it's like this guy's sitting there, and like, dude, you're sitting by yourself. Why are you all dressed up? This is what I imagine this guy doing. He's sitting there. He's got a cocktail in one hand, a cigar in one. And then the camera pans out, right? It's this drone shot. You see his entire property. It's silent. It's perfectly manicured. There's like ornamental fountains with like little cherubs spitting, oops, excuse me, cherubs spitting water. That's the only sound, right? But then in the movie, you start to hear in the distance the neighbors. And you hear kids splashing in the pool next door and their parents laughing. And on the other side, you hear the sizzle of a barbecue and music playing and friends laughing together. And then you know that it would cut, right? And you get the slow-mo of the kids like going crazy in the pool and the parents laughing and the, the, the friends on the other side having fun at the party. And, and then it would cut back to the guy and it like zooms in really slow on his face. And you know what he's thinking, right? Like the expression tells it all. He has this moment. 
And I don't know, maybe the scene ends with him like throwing the glass and it shatters or he like gets up from his lounge chair and goes inside and the rest of the movie goes to this pinnacle where he turns his life around and, and, and everything works out right. The point is, the teacher had this moment when he realized the success and wealth at the, experience, at the expense of isolation wasn't worth it. He goes on to say that two are better than one because they have a reward for their work. And then he goes into some practical, practical illustrations. You know, if you're traveling at the time, sometimes you might be stuck out in the desert and it's dark and you're walking along a path. And if you fall into a pit by yourself, you'd be in a like, pretty, uh, tricky, pretty tricky spot, right? You'd need someone to help you out of it. Or if you're traveling and it's bitterly cold as it gets in the desert, you're better off with someone else. Or if you're traveling and you come across some bad guys, you're probably better off with somebody else than by yourself, right? And then even though it may seem passive, the casual jump from two to three at the end of verse 12 is significant. He's saying the more quality friends, the better. So then we move on to examine another area of isolation, his experience as a leader. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king. At the end of his life, the teacher's remember, remembering how he started humble, but he's frustrated now because he isn't anymore. And look at the reason that he implies for this change. Who no longer knew how to take advice, or who knew, no longer knew how to heed a warning. Getting to this place where we're no longer teachable is a dangerous, dangerous place. When the voice in our own head becomes supreme truth, we are risk, at risk of living a very complicated life. If you have kids, they've, they've learned this as the growth mindset. The growth mindset gives room for encouragement. It gives room to fail and then encouragement to keep going. But the fixed mindset that they learn, it leads to pessimism. And it leads to giving up because you can't do it anymore. So we know that Solomon didn't get to this place overnight because you can read the whole story of his life in 1 Kings 1 through 11. And it starts with a young King Solomon who God comes to him and says, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And Solomon, in his humility, says, I just want wisdom, discernment how to lead. And God is so pleased with that that he gives him wisdom to the point, again, where he says, there will never be anyone as wise as you again, but he also gives him wealth and favor and power. He gives him everything, even though he just asked for wisdom. But then there's a whole section that names Solomon's high officials and his officers and all of their responsibilities. It's almost an entire chapter that talks about the people that Solomon went to for advice. I don't think that's in there just casually. I think it's intentional that, that it's there. And if your name is in the Bible, most often, it's a pretty big deal. So it seems that Solomon was surrounded by good people. It seems that he took his counsel because the next several chapters in 1 Kings talk about, how, talk about how Israel thrived, how it was a great nation under King Solomon's rule. And it was pinnacled by him building the temple, the house of the Lord, that would become a cultural icon and a source of identity for all of Israel. But then it takes this turn, and Solomon, it says, turns away from the Lord. He started worshiping the other gods of the land. And this would lead to the kingdom crumbling. So when he was listening to counsel, even as the wisest human of all time, he stayed close to God, but he hit this moment where he stopped listening to advice. And whether or not this passage is his admission or his confession of that, it's certainly a warning that isolation just isn't an option. He goes on to say that it's foolish. So one of the things that's unfortunately true about drifting into isolation like this is while it certainly has consequences for us individually, it also has a ripple effect. Isolation is not just a consequence for ourselves. Isolation has a ripple effect for others. And we know this because there's, 
Psalm, we have Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is written by a guy named Asaph, and he's one of the worship leaders for the people of Israel at the time. And Psalm 73 is the first book, or the first psalm in book three of the psalms. Now, why, you're like, why is that important? Book three is a section of psalms that is all dark laments, and it's all written during the time of the kingdom collapsing after Solomon, during and after Solomon. And so we have this unique poetic and emotional look wrestling with the effects of the crumbling kingdom, the failure of the king, and the example that the king set for the people. This would be like singing a song written during wartime, or a song that was written after a major cultural crisis. We're not going to read the whole thing, but if you look at Psalm 73 on the screen, it says in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Immediately, there's a juxtaposition. We could tell something's off, right? He's struggling, looking around and seeing that the culture is prospering to the point where he wonders himself, was a life of purity all in vain? Was it worth it? See, he lived in the midst of the king's implosion. He witnessed the drifting. He probably even sat under the king's teaching at the end of his life where the king was wrestling with these things, and Asaph is wrestling with the very same things. But then he has his own moment of realization. He says about processing this on his own in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was a wearisome task. It's overwhelming to process temptation, unfairness, the mystery, all of the complication of life in isolation. But look what he says in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. He has the same movie moment. He realizes he doesn't have to be alone. So he gets up, he goes to the sanctuary of God, the temple, the place where God promises to be. And also, very practically, it's a gathering of people. It's a gathering of people there to worship God. So Asaph, even though he's tempted to take the the under-the-sun perspective, he acknowledges that isolation leads to dark places, and the way to pull back up is to get in the presence of God, surrounded by other believers, immersed in the truth of the heavenly perspective. Um, About 12 years ago, uh, Monica, my wife, and I, we got pregnant for the first time. And we were so, so, so excited, right? Like, that is, that's one of those things you never forget. It's a joy that you never uh, can really even compare to. Um, and everything was great. We started telling people, and then there were some complications. And I won't get into all the details, but um, at one point, I wasn't sure if she was going to make it. We certainly weren't sure if the baby was going to make it. And uh, a little bit over halfway through the pregnancy, it turned out that um, she didn't. And that was the worst thing that I had ever experienced at that point in my life. And for any of you who have lost a child at any age, unborn, born, whatever age, it's awful. And I'm sorry that you've gone through that. Um, But I didn't know how to process that. And I certainly didn't want to process it with anybody else. And so I went into complete isolation. Certainly Monica and I had had talked about it. um, But outside of that, I did not want to did not care to, um, was not going to talk with anybody else. And that was a very, very dark place to be. I, I became angry, I became bitter, I was confused, I was upset. I, it was not, not a good place. But I remember um, a friend of mine, this was months later, we went out to lunch and we didn't talk about it at all. But at the very end, we're standing up to leave and he's like, how are you doing? And all of that nasty stuff that had been 
like brewing inside of me, had turned septic, came out. And he sat there and he listened to me. He didn't tell me what was wrong. He didn't tell me how to fix it. He didn't uh, tell me what I did wrong. He listened, he asked good questions, and he was just there for me and cared for me. And that was, that was a turning point. When I was thinking about this this week, when I was thinking about friendship, that is a moment that was a turning point for me. And I called him this week and told him that. Um, and I don't know if he knew what he was doing, honestly, but he was there and he was just a, a solid friend to me and he literally pulled me out of the pit. And honestly, I don't know, from that point, if that anger and all of that stuff and all of that isolation had continued, I don't know what that would look like today, but I am confident it would not be a good thing. So we need people to help us process this life. We need people to pull us out of the pit when we fall in or to keep us warm when it's cold or to help us fight the enemy when he comes up against us. And it's brutal to try that in isolation. And what's sad to me about this passage is that the teacher goes on to talk about the succession plan from him to the next king. And the worst part about it to me is they didn't learn from what happened to him. The same thing happened. The same thing happened. The new king went into isolation, and where did they land? Hevel, the exact same place. And what's interesting to me, too, is that the teacher doesn't give an answer to this problem. He just changes the subject. But because this is a master class from a master teacher, I think the answer is in the changing of subjects. Because look what he says in Ecclesiastes 5.1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. It seems that the teacher comes to the same conclusion that Asaph does in Psalm 73. When we face isolation either by our own choosing or by circumstances outside of our control, what the teacher implies by the structure of the sermon is the solution is not further isolation. That's just vapor. The solution is to open up. Open ourselves up to God and to other people by approaching the house of God, quite literally going to church. Dale's gonna look at chapter five next week and what the teacher says about how to approach the house of the Lord. But for our last few moments, I wanna talk about how are we supposed to open ourselves up. That's much easier said than done. So for the past decade or so, there's been an effort to understand loneliness. It's actually been uh, called an epidemic in America, and so there's been a lot of surveys and research done, but one of the leading researchers defines loneliness as that subjective discrepancy between our actual level of social connection and our desired level of connection. Does that make sense? It's the discrepancy of what we want and what we actually experience. And most people who write about loneliness agree that it doesn't equate to just being around people. You can be around a ton of people and still feel lonely. So psychology would generally say that just being in church isn't a cure for loneliness or isolation. But the teacher of Ecclesiastes and Asaph, the worship leader, both make this connection between relationships and the house of God. So there's gotta be something here for us. So some of the findings from these surveys include how to com combat loneliness. And at the top, the solutions provided are usually some, something like serve somewhere. Like get out of yourself, be around other people, give to other people, and generally service opportunities are alongside other people. So that's probably why that's that way. So in church, certainly there are opportunities to serve. There's a bunch of them here. You've heard about House of Hope. There's a Shining Stars respite coming up on Saturday where you can serve families who have children with disabilities. There's opportunities in Calvary Kids, student ministries, worship team, caring for foster kids. There's lots of ways to serve here at church. You can find out about those at calvarylg.com now. 
but stick with me for a second because I'm not saying the only connection between the house of the Lord, psychology, and relationships is serving at church. Because the second way to combat loneliness is investing in personal relationships. Now, Paul gives this case study in his letter to the Galatians at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, and he talks about what true relationship and true friendship should look like. And it's a picture of how friendship works in crisis in particular, like when somebody is stuck in something that they can't get out of and they feel stuck. And so Paul says essentially that a friend is there for you in your moment of need, holds you accountable by bearing your burden, and this literally means letting some of their burden slide onto you. It says that a friend walks with them and then helps restore them from that brokenness. Timothy Keller summarizes by saying that true friendship is marked by vulnerability and constancy. Now, this is also one of the passages that's used to form the idea of friendship being a spiritual discipline, which would put friendship right alongside praying, reading your Bible, giving, going to church, serving, fasting. And I think it's right because a discipline, it takes work. Friendship takes work, but it also bears great fruit. And I, th- and I think what's tricky here is the problem is we don't drift into quality friendships. We drift into isolation. And to complicate it, our natural selves are opposed to this. And many of you I know have long-standing, deep, deep quality friendships. You, many of you could teach friendships much better than I can, um, and that is awesome. You should keep pushing into those relationships, keep fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens and keep fighting the good fight against relationship complacency. But maybe you're here today and you admit to yourself that you relate to the teacher, that either you feel isolated because of something, I don't know, that you've chosen over friendship or over relationship. And this is rarely intentional, by the way, Remember, there's a reason that the teacher has a moment of realization. It's a slow drift over time. If we look at 1 Kings, it's not like Solomon fired, or he, you know, he had all this wise counsel on Monday, fired them all on Tuesday, and then woke up Wednesday realizing, I'm isolated and this is, this is vapor. Right? It was a slow drift over decades. Excuse me, it was a dec- over decades, and then in the moment of reflection at the end of his life, this was his realization. But maybe that's you today, that you, you would say you identify with the teacher that you've isolated yourself. Now your inclination, if that's you, might, feel, might be to feel guilty or angry, but that's not the point. The point is to acknowledge it and then to take steps to get back to places of right relationships and health. But maybe you admit to yourself that you're afraid to be vulnerable again, or a vulnerable, vulnerable, that's a tough word to say many times in a row. Vulnerable, there we go, for the first time. And maybe it was because of a past hurt or something that was done to you outside of your control. And honestly, I I can relate to that. I can't identify one singular moment that happened. But at some point, I remember thinking to myself how strong I was because of how private I was. That is absolutely vapor. It's ridiculous. But I got to that place. Now, hopefully, my friends would say that I've made some progress here. Um, But I'm so grateful that a decade ago, I had someone who was willing to say, I'm not going to let you drift into isolation. I'm gonna pull you out of the pit. But here's the challenging part. I had to go first. He didn't know. He didn't know what I was feeling on the inside. I had to to open up and let him in. It's challenging. It's very, very challenging. So how do we do this part? In that same passage in Galatians 6, Paul makes a paradoxical statement 
And this statement is unique to the Christian faith, by the way. He says, if you think you're something, you deceive yourself. You're nothing. But the very next verse, he says, take pride in yourself. How is that possible? How can you have such a high view and a low view at the same time? Because as Christians, we know we're sinners, so we should have the humility thing down really, really great, maybe too great sometimes where we dip into shame and guilt. But we also know that because of the sacrifice of Jesus and his conquering of death, we are made everything in him. So if we know we're sinners, that should humble, humble us out of our selfishness. And if we know that we're loved by God, that should affirm us out of our fear of vulner- vulnerability. That word is gonna get me every time this morning. <laughs> but this is part of the identity that allows us to be friends in the first place. And this self-image comes from practicing that discipline of friendship, fulfilling the law of Christ, maybe more accurately, the way of Christ, and that comes from bearing one another's burdens. And is there a greater form of service than bearing another person's burden? So the very thing that psychologists say is the single most effective combatant to loneliness is bearing, it could be bearing someone's burdens, becoming a friend, becoming a spiritual friend with somebody. Now in Jesus, God became one of us. This is not a little burden bearing. This is a huge burden bearing for God to come and, be, and take on flesh. And he didn't stop there. On the cross, he took on all of our burdens, all of our suffering, so that we don't have to. Very quite literally pulling us out of the pit. He is the ultimate burden bearer for the entire human race, and this is the picture of the ultimate friend. In John 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. When we see Jesus bear our burdens, when we see him lay down his life for us, his friends, doesn't it make it possible for us to bear the burden of somebody else? And this is part of the mystery of the Christian faith, where we can have this personal relationship with a deity, with the God, the creator of the universe, who loves it all, who cares about it all, who created you, who loves you, who knows you, and who calls you friend. And as Dale said last week, this experience of ha'alom, the experience of eternal peace is available only in that relationship. And it's from that relationship that allows us to be in relationship with others despite our selfishness and our fear. At the night of vision and prayer, Dale talked about two things as we have the mindset of a church planner is rebuilding and renewing. And when we talk, one of the things we talked about uh, rebuilding as a church is through hospitality. And this is it right here. Being people who are willing to let the burden of someone else slide onto us. To carry it together and fight the drift towards isolation together. Now, if we can rebuild this church with that kind of connectedness, that in and of itself is an opportunity to offer renewal to the community around us. Because if isolation causes a ripple effect, so does true friendship. An article that Dale read at Night of Vision and Prayer, Timothy Keller says, if the American church wants a chance to reach the culture around us, a culture that is already averse to Christianity, one of the things we must do is we must help non-Christians see that their indelible needs and longings are actually echoes of their need for God. One of those needs, he says, is a freedom that doesn't reduce community and relationships to thin transactions. See, if the stats are true that a majority of Americans are lonely and the reality of a post-truth culture 
is that the individualistic mind logically views relationships as transactional, then we have an opportunity to minister to the culture by creating a counterculture that's built on godly wisdom that defines relationships according to God's design. See, the questions people ask about life when answered from the under the sun human perspective, they have no choice but to be informed by the culture they're immersed in. We can't blame people for that. And the thing that made the show Friends so successful is its ability to create an image that allowed viewers to see what they wanted for themselves and place themselves in the story. But what if the culture saw in the church the innate need they have to belong being fulfilled? This church, the American church, but this church in particular can be that very same thing. A place of authentic relationships founded on godly wisdom, practicing the friendship model of Jesus where no one is allowed to slip into isolation, which is one of those main needs of the culture. A place where we allow the burdens of others to slip onto us and we're willing to carry them together. A place that is so welcoming and so hospitable and so friendly that someone who might feel like an outsider can see themselves as a part of the story and is confident when they're invited in. That's a place that I want to be a part of. I think that's a place that we all want to be a part of. And it doesn't mean that everybody has to be deep spiritual friends with everybody. But it does mean that everybody has to be committed to nobody feeling alone. When we look at God's word, we always want to end by responding. So I just invite you to take a moment to pray on your own. Listen to what God might be saying to you. If you haven't already, just take a moment to reflect. Where do you see yourself this morning? Do you feel isolated based on something that you chose? Do you feel isolated based on something that someone else chose for you? Either way, just think for a second. Are you feeling isolated? Are you feeling lonely? next part might feel risky because it is but if you do feel lonely if you do feel isolated would you be willing to tell someone that you need help carrying a burden you don't have to tell them all the details this morning you don't have to tell them what the burden is even but would you just say to somebody I need I can't do this by myself anymore I need help set up a time to talk Maybe you're not feeling isolated. Would you just ask God to put somebody on your heart who is? And would you reach out? Just be a blessing. Who, who is God asking you to bless today? <laughs>